Hello and welcome back to the What The Fourth podcast in association with Viper Goalkeeping. Today's guest is a defender that amassed over 500 league appearances for the likes of Sunderland, Sheffield United and Preston North End. And he's a man who currently finds himself stateside as manager and head coach of Tampa Bay Rowdies. Welcome to the show, Neil Collins. How are you doing? Are you all right? Great. Thanks very much for having me. Great to speak to you. Not a problem at all, mate. First time I haven't messed up an intro in about sort of five weeks, that one. Well done. I'm getting there, mate, professional after all. Um, we'll start off with the present, and there's a heck of a lot we can speak about with the present, but currently head coach of the Tampa Bay Rowdies. They play in what most people would recognize as like the American version of the championship, I believe. Um, yeah. So you live in the state of Florida, which, let's be honest, was an area severely hit by coronavirus. Um, six months has been weird for everyone, but as a manager, maybe in a different place to where we are at the moment, how has it been in context of being a manager with the pandemic? Yeah, especially as a young, I think whether you're a young coach or an experienced coach, no one's dealt with this before. So there was a lot, a lot of firsts, um, a lot of challenges. Um, so that's been a real learning experience because uh, as much as we all love football and trying to build a team and tactics and uh, man management, it becomes secondary when, when people can't do their jobs. So trying to deal with that side of things. But since we've come back, the players have made my life easy because they've they've done a really good job looking after themselves and we've managed to kind of get on with things as normal, as normal as it could be in the circumstances and we've got to play. And I think if you'd said to me in May that we'd get the opportunity and we'd have played 14 games and we'd be getting prepared for the playoffs, I'd have, I'd have been delighted. So, um, yeah, really, really pleased with how things have went in the circumstances. But um, there's always that kind of reality lurking we're in such a bubble here that you know there's a lot of other things going on in the world and the worst of it's probably still not passed from from a big picture kind of point of view but at least we've got the football to take our minds off it absolutely and i think i mean it's, at the time of speaking it's a bit of a weird one the premier league obviously got the play out and the leagues have started and within florida at the moment are, are you able to play in america or is it certain restrictions on crowds or yeah so we've um, so we started back in I think our first game back was in July. Mm -hmm. um, first two or three games, no crowds. But again, every state's different. It's almost like an own you know, country. So we're we're allowed. I think um, off the top of my head, I think we're maybe allowed twenty five percent capacity. Yeah. But our clubs, our clubs, just trying to make it as safe as possible. So next next home game, we're looking for seven hundred people, which will be ten percent of our capacity. So. Um, We've been fortunate to play two or three games on the road with fans, a lot of closed, behind closed door games. Um, and, and I think that's the funny thing that I'm struggling with right now, especially when I watch Premier League and, and football back in the UK. Is football's all about the fans, but yet we've started the season without them. And I understand this is where it becomes, is it about the fans or is it about the TV deals? And I see both sides of it. Because at the end of the day, these clubs need to function and they need to survive, and that's why they need to be on the television. But it's disappointing without fans. It's just not the same. No, it certainly feels really different. And I've been lucky enough to watch a few games on my own in a stadium for a minute, but I'm kind of working, can't be a fan. I haven't been to the stadium light in six months. It's, it's very weird for everyone, and I think everyone's got their own sort of challenges with it. But as a manager, one thing I found weird when I'm watching sort of Sunderland, for example, is I can hear everything Phil Parkinson's saying. Like, I can hear what his instructions are and it's it's kind of nice in a, in a weird way. 
is it easier for you as a manager to kind of get instructions to your players when you're behind closed doors then? Yeah, well, the players can't ignore me, can they? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely a help because that's one of the toughest things. Is a there's a never mind as a manager, but as a player, when it's a full house and it's when the noise is up, you can't hear. You hear quite often hear commentators saying, "Oh, you should have shouted for that," and they should know that you don't always hear, even when someone's ten feet away. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely that's definitely helpful, but it's not so helpful when you're maybe shouting things that you shouldn't and uh, it gets picked up by the TV cameras. So I've certainly had to learn quickly on that one. We, we don't swear here in Scotland, do we? We never say anything uh, bad. Absolutely <laughs> not. Always good going corrected. Absolutely. Um, when it first started the pandemic, what, what sort of... Res- I mean, we had probably similar restrictions, to be honest, but you never really know the differences between countries and we're, we're a good seven hours apart. So um, what restrictions were placed on you as a sort of a manager? So, um, funny enough, we were just kind of talking about that today. Uh, to start with, it was pretty similar to my home lockdown. Um, our owners were very much like, just safety first, as most clubs in the USA were. So, everyone at home. Um, we, we, we didn't over, um, overdo it with the players. Yeah, we gave them an outline of a programme to do, but how can you give someone a programme when there's no end in sight? Yeah. What, what, what's the, the purpose? So... The lads uh, did some things on their own. We kept in touch with them on a personal basis. But then we got back into groups of four. So it was groups of four, non-contact training. And to start with, it was amazing just to be out of the house, purpose. But quite quickly, maybe I think we did that for two or three weeks. As we got to our third week, you're starting to think, don't know how much longer we can keep this going. But then we managed to get it progressed to the next stage, which was 10, groups of 10, non-contact, which was a step up. And then we had that for two weeks before we then got back into full contact testing. So I think the testing changed everything because obviously when you're testing people, you can then allow them if they're negative to just continue as normal. So um, those months seemed probably a lot longer than they were. But um, it was the biggest problem was no one knew what was happening the following day, never mind the following week. So that that made it very tough. What, What do you plan for? You know, um, so it really was a day at a time. Everything was a day at a time. And uh, from speaking to people back home in the UK, it was very similar. Yeah, a lot of people said the same thing. It's like, how do you, you don't know what you're working towards, so to speak. And that, that yeah. makes it difficult when there's just sort of no end game. Um, one thing I'm quite curious about with the American leagues, I think when people talk about the American leagues, they go MLS and there's a lot of focus around that and which players are in there and who's been there and who's who's kind of made the game bigger and, who's had failed moves there and who's had successful moves there. But your league is only a division below. But from what I can tell, it's sort of sectioned into groups almost. Not not like a state, but it almost is like that. I think you've got Atlanta in your groups and things like that. What is the setup of the league for the people that don't know and how does it work? So the, the normal setup um, outside this year is, is, is two leagues split, uh, East and Western Conference. Um think it's around 18, 16 to 18 teams in both of those, depending. I mean, you've always got new teams appearing uh, as teams go into the MLS. So you got 16 to 18 teams in both companies and you generally play each other home and away. Uh, so last year was a 34-game season. And then you go into a playoff system and the winner from Eastern Conference, Western Conference plays in the final. This year, just due to the, the pandemic, to make everyone's uh, life 
easier and always safer. They've they've done what you've just described. They've condensed it into uh -huh. regionalized groups for travel purposes. So we've not had to fly anywhere. Uh, you can imagine the size of the states. Um, in a normal season, we fly to most games. Whereas this year, we can drive to Atlanta, we can drive to Charleston, um, we drive to Miami. So it was just from that point of view, and it has worked out well because it's gave us a season. And as much as it's not ideal to play the same teams three or four times, it's, it's, it's better than not playing. You know, not playing at all. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. And I suppose that's probably a change up for you because you've been there a good two, three years now, and. I imagine that's definitely a shock to the system, flying probably five to seven hours for an away game. But on the flip side, I suppose it's probably a nice break up for you being able to kind of go back old school like you were in the UK and sort of drive oh, places in. It's brilliant and the players love it because you're much more in control of your own destiny. You get on the bus, um, you can walk about, you can, you know, you're not going for airport security. And I think that's the thing when people ask to compare the level, it's hard because you don't. Get on flights when you're in Scotland or in England to play, and that takes a toll on your body. Whereas here, you do, yeah. um, and then you've got the environmental factors of the heat. So it's been a nice change, uh, not not having to fly, and um, it's definitely gone back old school. Uh, you know, get on the bus, tell a few stories, play some cards. It's good. <laughs> Going sort of all the way back then to your childhood, quite quite far away from Florida. Uh, you were born in in Toon in Scotland. Um, it's a cheesy question to ask, but I always think it's a good question to ask. Um, what are your earliest sort of childhood memories of falling in love with football? No, that's easy. Um, that's really easy. Um, my dad took me to watch Kilmarnock Football Club um, and just remember, again, probably more than anything, just spending time with my dad was the first thing. But then being in the crowd, we used to be terracing at Kilmarnock, so you're standing, I'd be playing behind the goal probably. Um, and then getting to know the players. Kilmarnock was a great period in Kilmarnock's history when I started supporting because they were in the second division. Tommy Burns um, came as a player, a phenomenal signing at the time. He was my hero. So I think my earliest childhood memories, really honestly, playing on a Saturday morning, coming home and then going to watch Kilmarnock, just football. And, and that was one of the strangest things about the, the lockdown. For the first time since about five years old, I was having Saturdays, just no, no football. Yeah, of yeah. course, you had the summer holidays. That's fine for five or six weeks when you know it's coming. But when, when it's not planned and you just don't have that fix, it's strange. So, um, yeah, that's, that's my childhood memories. Especially in Scotland as well. I find like during the pandemic, there were just a load of people in Scotland just be wandering around sort of aimless, just not really sure what, what to do. Like, where do I go next? Just with, um, As a kid, did you ever get the chance to meet Tommy Burns? Because there's so many good stories and what a great man he was. And I think everyone loved him, didn't they? I mean, honestly, again, you've been doing, you know, what you've been doing, so you've heard great stories and I can tell you one. Come on up, beat Wraith Rovers 5-1 in the Scottish Cup and it was a great performance and I was just, as I say, in love with the team and in love with Tommy Burns and wrote him a letter that night about how much I enjoyed watching the team and I still got his response, you know, a month later, uh, handwritten. And um, again, that, there'll be a million stories about that, about the man. And uh, it's just great to hear when you hear other people speak about him. So... Yeah, just and it's amazing because he had such an impact in Kilmarnock and then you look yeah. at the impact he had in Celtic people forget what he did for Kilmarnock because he's considered a Celtic man yeah um, but yeah he's 
when people ask about you know who, who you grew up watching, there's obviously great players that, that played in England, but, but for, for me, he was the man. Yeah, I think he's a few people as well, absolutely. As it was as a player, you, you started off with Queen's Park, a club notorious for their production and their, their production line, sorry, of quality of Scottish talent. I mean, you could reel off a million and one names, Andy Robertson being the big one, but you're another one as well that came from Queen's Park, made it into the league, and had a good career in Championship League One. But what is it about Queen's Park that sort of creates that environment that people can flourish to such a high level? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I suppose many clubs try it. And I think um, for me at the time was they give everyone an opportunity. Yeah. So wherever you've been, within reason, but they're always they're always having trials. They're always opening the doors to someone. Now, you then have to perform. But I think they're a club that's just always um, on the outlook for, 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 the, for you know, someone that's maybe just a bit behind in their development or someone that's coming out of an academy that's looking for another opportunity. And then there's, there's that pathway to the, the first team. You know, um, clubs that generally have success are the ones that create opportunities and they, and they always do that. And I just absolutely loved it at the club. The people the people behind the scenes, the, the fans. I mean, it's, it's obviously a really traditional club and uh, with great history. And it, yeah, it was great to be part of that. So... I was lucky enough to play in the first team at 17 and that was one of the reasons I went there in the first place because I just felt that playing reserve team football and first team football at a young age was going to be far more beneficial than um, potentially being in an academy where you can be one of many. Yeah, very much so. And I think that there's a lot of players that go to Queen's Park that do have that hunger that have maybe been, I mean, Robbo, obviously, from Celtic, he dropped down. I think Shankland uh, would have been the same year. I think I'm sure he got dropped from, from Rangers, I think yeah. it was at the time. Yeah. And it seems that, and I think you were obviously at Kilmarnock, weren't you? I think you were released at about 14 yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So, right, yeah. history of players there dropping down, finding the hunger to play, and then all of a sudden zooming back up the leagues in, in sort of no time. But as it was, you, you had a pit stop. Um, you went to, to Dumbarton where is where you, if we're honest with each other, really built up your reputation and got the captaincy at a really young age. What was it that clicked for you at Dumbarton? Yeah, so I had, I had one full season, one full season in the first team at Queen's Park. It was a real learning curve. I mean, a real learning curve. We had a really young team. When I, when I came through at Queen's Park, we had the best uh, under-16 team in the country. At the time, we'd play regularly, like professional teams beat them. A lot of those players then went into the first team to play together, but were very young. So that was a tough year. But I felt when I came back that following pre-season, just felt like a different player. I just felt like I was getting stronger, more experienced. And in pre-season games, I played really well against Hibs. And actually against Dumbarton, I played really well. And they wanted to sign me after that. And I think I just felt um, at that point in time, they were a step up in level. They had some really good players, players I'd grown up watching. Um, so I thought it was a good chance to test myself and then maybe get more in the shop window. And I, and I know people weren't watching me at Queen's Park, but I just thought it was a little bit of a step up. And when I went there, the manager showed a lot of faith in me, as had John McCormick at Queen's Park. And yeah, I just I just felt much more comfortable in my body as 18, 19-year-olds, ready to play at that level. And I do remember that I started getting linked here, there and everywhere. And that was a big learning curve because I had that, but then nothing quite happened. Yeah. So, you know, you had to keep your head down and 
when you when you're that age and you're reading the papers, you're thinking, "Is this going to happen?" But you know, it was it was two real, real good years, but also learning as well. And it was. I think your move was vindicated as well. And I think at the time, Dumbarton were like a division above, if I remember correctly. That's right. Um, so you've got that step up, but I think your decision and what you've just explained there was vindicated because it was there you were spotted by Mick McCarthy. It was there you had trials at Rangers. You had trials at Charlton. Um, I'm a Sunderland fan, so I've always got to ask this question, but what convinced you that Wearside was the place to be? Uh, I mean, again, at that point, uh, I've had those trials and done well, but just nothing had quite fallen into place. And then uh, my agent at the time was Gordon Smith, and he phoned, he phoned me. I remember the, I remember the moment. Yeah, Sunderland want to take you on trial. And at that time, straight away, I thought, wow, Mick McCarthy's a manager of Sunderland. That's a huge club, and you the stadium alike. And I was just like, wow, because I would have taken at that point in time, honestly, the opportunity, League One, League Two, any opportunity to go full-time, I would have grasped it. And I went down, they just came back pre-season training from America. Um, and they came back, and honestly, the first morning, uh, no one came to pick me up at the hotel. So I'm thinking, ah, oh, this is not good. I'm not, I'm just... Because one thing about trials is you can sometimes go on trial and it's just someone ticking a box, just someone doing someone a favour. So I was concerned. But then on the second day there, I played on a full 11-11 match with, with the first team. And did, I knew I did really well. And afterwards, Mick took me, Stevie Caldwell, and um, Mark Lynch and, and, and started doing some individual work. And I think that was his way of testing to see just see a little bit close and straight after that he was speaking to me and I thought I'd made an impression and then um, he asked me down for the following week and a couple of boys had said to me like I think I think you're doing really well you've got a chance and again um, at the end of that week Mick, Mick just said if, if the fee can be agreed with Dumbarton um, we'll sign you and, and again the thought going to Sunderland to me was just like beyond the wildest dreams to be quite honest uh, I pinched myself and when the phone call came that everything had been agreed, I was down there two days later signed. And I remember um, that day I played in the reserve game and then Mick had said, look, we've arranged tickets to come to watch Sunderland against Crew that evening. And me and Dad drove. And as we got closer to the stadium, they kept just waving us on, like waving us on, letting you come and you come. Before you know it, we were at the front door and we went in the marble, you know, the, the entrance, the marble yeah. kind of entrance. And I think me and my dad were like, couldn't believe it. We just couldn't believe it. Uh, couldn't believe it that, we, that that this was happening. So, yeah, it was it was a great moment. It was a great moment to go from from Dumbarton to Sunderland. I think that was the I think that was the game we won three one. I'm sure Stephen yeah. Elliott scored in that game. I was there. Great yeah, game. do remember that. Um, talking of Stephen Elliott, that kind of probably brings me quite nicely into one of the questions. Um, one thing I really remember about that season. And I mean this in the nicest possible way is that I look at the team in League One with something now and I think oh, that's probably the weakest team we've had in, in my lifetime. It's not that great. But then I look at the side that we had in the championship winning season and I look at the players and where they were brought from. And on paper, that was relatively sort of, I suppose you could class as a weak squad. There wasn't really that many names on it. You had Danny Collins, you had yourself, all came from like lower division clubs, yeah. Dean Whitehead, Liam Lawrence. When you've seen the players that he was bringing in and giving a chance to, and be, be, bearing in mind the reason you went to Queen's Park or one of the reasons you enjoyed your time at Queen's Park, taking out the factor of how big of a club something is and how much of a chance it was, 
how much did that sway decision that you thought actually McCarthy might not just chuck me in the reserves for two years, he might actually give me a chance here because he has done with X, Y, and Z? Yeah, again, I was very much on at that point in time. I had so much belief in myself that when I signed Mick, was like, look, I think you can have a career. Um, you could just tell he was an honest guy. You know, you know, he's quite clear that. And then starting the reserves, I just felt, look, give me a chance. Just get me in the door and I'll, I'll prove myself. Um, when I arrived at the club, I could see that they were signing these young, hungry players along with the good players they already had. But I could see as well there was a bit of a malaise in terms of that group underneath. Yeah, they had some talented young players, but they, they were probably a product of a system that you see now where they become too used to their expectations of it. Yeah. It's just going to be handed to them. That definitely happened. And I thought, I came in and I was so hungry. And um, yeah, just I, could just I could just sense that I was going to play for a manager that played my position, an honest guy, seen something in me that he liked. If I just, as I say, listened to him and from him, the opportunities were going to come. And they came really, really quickly, which was, um, again, the opportunity because of the squad that you said. There, there was always going to be opportunities in that squad. And then just, yeah, the, the type of manager he is, he gave me that chance. The um, the team itself, you know, as it was, I think he threw you in within sort of the first few weeks. So you're talking about going into the stadium just as a fan. Um, and if I remember rightly, we, we were pulling at least sort of 35, I think then, 35,000, 40,000. So no disrespect to Dumbarton, but second division in the, in the Scottish League, or, or third tier, if you prefer, I think as it was at the time. And then three weeks later, you're in front of like 35, 40,000. Um, you talk about being very hungry and, and kind of wanting to prove yourself with that. And I can understand why, but what is it actually like walking out of that tunnel into that kind of white hot atmosphere and expectation? Oh, amazing. I mean, it just, uh, again, I think when you go older, you look back and you, you, like you say the question, like, what was that like? Again, at that point in time, you, you realise that you've taken a big step, but you're also quite blinkered in that, yeah, I'm, I'm ready for this. Um, again, my dad my dad tells a story about he flew to Redden to, to come and see my full my debut. Um, and he said he was like coming up to the stadium and he's like, I just can't believe that I've went from going to watch you at Dumbarton, I'm, I'm walking up and there's thousands of Sunderland fans have made the journey and, you know, you're playing, you're, you're going to be playing at the Majeski that night. So, I think um, I was trying to soak it in, but at the same time, it was such a whirlwind that I was just like um, a game of football, you know. Yeah. But I think it was the, I think it was the things outside of it more than the game. The game was great, playing football, loving it, playing in a good team. It went relatively well for me early on, but then, but then it's that you're going down the street and some people recognise you, and you're on the back page of the Sunderland Echo and. That's where um, the dressing room was good because they keep your feet in the ground. You know, that you know, it was a good dressing room with that people like Gary Bean, Marcus Stewart, Thomas Meyer. You know, you wouldn't get carried away. But as a young boys, we just had a great time. We just we just honestly had a great time. I've heard some really, really good things about Thomas Meyer, and I don't know why. Obviously, he was great for us in that year, but I've heard he was more of a character than maybe we were let on. What what was Tommy Meyer like? Was he as funny as I've been told? Yeah, brilliant. Just, just again, like I think I understand your point about the squad. I know, I know what you're saying, and I think that's a problem. People play like to play football on paper, and it's not mm -hmm. played on paper. And 
and and that squad in paper is not the best team in the league. But when you look at the nuts and bolts, Gary Brain, fantastic that season. Marcus Stewart, fantastic. George McCartney, Stephen yeah. Wright, Julio Archer, fantastic. Right, so the 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 mainstay of the team was fantastic. Tommy Myra came in that team that year, and for me as a young fan, about every time I played, I just felt so confident because he was just a experienced man who would help you, and then come in do his work and. Yeah, he was just funny, but just funny in a dry sense, dry way, and came in, did his business, and, and went at home. But yeah, he's someone that probably, again, Sunderland fans don't mean underestimate, but because he was just so methodical in the way he played, you know, really perfect for a championship goalkeeper. Yeah, he just, he was, he was, for that one season, obviously the season afterwards, I think mistakes were made personally as a fan, but for that one season, he was superb, and it's probably because we've had so many good goalkeepers kind of. A little bit forgotten about, but he was phenomenal yeah. in that whole season. Um, yeah. Really, really good. I think we lost him for one game against Ipswich away, and no offence to Michael Ingham, but you could see there was a difference there with him yeah. and his experience not being there. Um, yeah. I think we spoke about affair how much we, we both are big fans of Mick McCarthy, and I think the last time we actually spoke, which was a good few years ago now, um, you said Mick was the biggest influence on your career. Now, I know that you went onwards to Wolves, which we will come on to. But but what is it that Mick did for you that meant you held him in such high esteem? I think um, any manager or coach that gives you an opportunity, I mean, I look at the, the guys at Queen's Park and Barton, I've got um, great affection for them because they, they, they gave me that first break and, and Mick gave me my first break in full time. But then it was obviously the fact that I was part of successful teams. You know, because he um, created great environments. But on top of that, he, he put together, you know, very organised teams and very effective teams that won championships and totally underrated the fact that he won the championships under nine rules in a, in a league that's very hard to not just get promoted but win the championship. So for me, again, it was just... Um, I probably get the benefit of what Mick you know, worked with me on more when I didn't play for him. As I became 27, 28, 29... I really started to to benefit from all the work and all the kind of time I had under him. Um, so yeah, just just a very good, very good manager. Talking about the the team spirit we had, obviously we won the championship that year in your first year, and you seemed, you know, yeah, I think you played almost half the games. I think the team itself had a really good team spirit, a really good mixture of young um, and hungry players and old, well, old in inverted commas, had been there and done it. Marcus Stewart, Gary Breen, that that kind of player. But there's one particular character that really stands out in my mind when I remember those days. Uh, the Irish Slim Shady, as I will refer to him as, uh, Sean Thornton. I would love to meet him just for 10 minutes because um, I just don't think there's probably anyone like him from what I've been told. But what are your memories of, of Sean Thornton? Me and Sean were like chalk and cheese. Um, you know, in terms of I was this angry Scotsman that wanted to give 100% every minute of the day. And then Sean was this like talented, technical player um, and so cheeky. So me and him had our moments in training, but he was funny. Yeah. He was funny. I mean, him and Stephen Elliott together were like double act funny. And um, yeah, I mean, one thing again, when I came and I knew Sean, because I remember he burst on the scene in the yeah. Premier League, but just straight away thought he's a you know, really good player. You know, even yeah. guys that weren't playing every week, just a really good player. And one of many that have just, falling short because of their lifestyle outside the field. But, yeah, I mean, he, he had a brass neck. Yeah. I think uh, Mick McCarthy, from what I've been told, and I've interviewed Jeff Whitley before, who was obviously another one of his 
very close mates. Um, I think Sean was sort of difficult to handle, even even for Mick. I mean, what was like a what was a regular day for Sean Thornton in training? I mean, there wasn't so any such thing as a regular day because he was like <laughs> some. He was hot and cold, you know. Um, just yeah, he, he, when he was on, and when he was on, he was great. And when he was on, though, he would let you know about it afterwards. Um, unfortunately, he's just not on often enough. Yeah. I do remember one funny story though. Sean came in with this red like, night rain jacket. It was kind of quite strange, and um, you know, it wasn't like. Wasn't what maybe anyone else would have wore, but he wore it in. But it looked like the Sunderland rain jackets at the time. So we're warming up. Well, Jeff's got it on. Like Jeff's got like Sean's brand new night rain jacket on, and Sean's not even realised until halfway through the session. That's great. That's where Jeff, Jeff was another great character on that team. Yeah, and great then guy. Jeff did it, but just great. That that's the thing about that team again. It wasn't full of uh, choir boys. It certainly had its characters. But oh, it, was, it was great. And for a young player who was a bit wet behind the ears, you know, yeah, it was on the receiving end a few times. Did you ever think that his rep career might have taken off? Or do you think his rep career was best left in the dressing room? Oh, definitely. It shouldn't even have seen the light of day, you know. It should it was, never have seen the light of day. It was bad. Even as a, an impressionable, I think, 13, 14 year old as I would have been at the time, I think even I was like, no, that's not going to happen at all. I, I, I actually think that that moment sums Sean up. And that, as opposed to just taking a step back, the boys just laid the bait and he just took it hook, line, and sinker. And you know, there was someone in, in Sunland, I think, had bought his old house and dug the flooring up. Um, and when they lifted it up, he had tiled on the floor like ST number 10 or something like that, like down in like this special print or whatever. I'm sure, I'm sure Chris Brown was the one that brought that one up. And I think someone found the photo. And I think saying that Brownie's no choir boy either, is he? Let's be honest. Um, there's a good story about Brownie, which is actually one of mine. Brownie, around the same time we had a discussion, uh, he invited me down to the, the Sunderland games. I really enjoyed the interview. I've never been back to Sunderland. I've, I've got tickets to the Players' Lounge. And that, me, council estate kid from Southwick, had never been in the Players' Lounge. So I said, yeah, you know, I'd love to. That'd be brilliant. So he says, I'll, you know, I'll bring you down. There's no problem. Um, my dad's going to be there, Alan, and stuff like that. I says, oh, fantastic. No problem at all. Um, I says, what do I wear? Like, I've never been in a players' lounge. I've never had anyone players that I've known or anything like that. Like, is it just casual? And he went, no, it's got to be like a black suit with a red tie and it's got to be a white shirt. So I'm like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah, it has to be me or the one that you're in. And I was like, all right, brilliant, no problem at all. So I, I went out and bought this like nice like trim suit from Burton's. I got myself a nice red tie from Asda, pretty much like a club tie, pretty much. Put some nice shoes on and stuff like that. He says, oh, can you meet us in the Peacock beforehand? Says, yeah, no bother, mate. He says, all the lads are here. We'll walk down in our suits. Sent a photo and I went, is this all right? And he's like, yeah, it's fantastic, no problem. I turned up with the Peacock and they were all in fucking Lambswell jumpers and <laughs> casual dress. So yeah. Oh. Yeah, so that, that one's been let out of the bag, Brownie, you bastard. Thanks very much. Um, he's brown. Yeah, brown. He's, 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 he's a good man. I'm not surprised he's gone on and do well with this podcast, truth be told. But uh, yeah, if he tells you to wear his suit, he means the opposite. Um, obviously, I know you stay in touch with Brownie because you were on Under the Cosh not too long ago, which I watched live. Um, but I think, you know, talking about team spirit, you've remained close with quite a few of the lads, haven't you, at the, at the club? Yeah, yeah. Me, me and Dean Whitehead were really good friends, and, and we're actually on our pro license together mm -hmm. right now. Um, I mean, Brownie, Brownie was really helpful to me when I came to Sunderland. 
uh, even though he's a little younger, just kind of showed me the ropes and just was really good. Dean Whitehead, I mean, Stephen Elliott was my roommate. Um, again, there's there's a lot of lads. Danny Collins, we we just had a great group. Lads, I played with Gary Breen again at, at Wolves. Um, yeah, so again, you know what it's like with these teams that you don't always get to stay in touch as much as you'd like, but the minute you get together and it's good, and Stevie Caldwell's in um, Canada and I've bumped into him a couple of times when we've been in Toronto and he's helped me on a couple of occasions with, with things, so it's great to be able to pick up the phone to these guys. Um, the following season obviously didn't go that well for the club at all. I think, but for you as an individual, and I'm looking at it from like a different perspective, you spent time on loan at Hartlepool and, and Sheffield United. You came back a couple of times and went back on loan, but I think in total, you played about sort of 30 games, so Whilst the club's kind of suffering, how important was that spell in your career to have two really good loan spells with two really good clubs? Yeah, it, you know what? It was a really strange season. Um, Hartlepool was fantastic. And, and in hindsight, and I know, and I know uh, why Mick, Mick did it, because he needed me back. In hindsight, I probably would have been better just trying to get the 40, 50 games in at Hartlepool. You know, I left them um, to come back. And at the time, when Mick's calling you back and you're thinking, great, let's go and stake a claim to try and get in the team. Really difficult period at Sunderland, obviously, at the time. And then um, played in the FA Cup at home uh, to Northwich. Northwich. Yeah, and scored. And scored. Good. I mean, again, against the conference team, you know, and we won. Um, and then um, probably missed my opportunity to really force a claim because we went to Brentford and didn't play great. The team didn't play great. We got beaten, which was a really disappointing day. Um, and then I remember, yeah, then I went to Sheffield United on loan. Um, and then in the meantime, Mick, Mick got sacked. I came back from Sheffield United and that was probably one of the most disappointing things um, that I never got opportunity when I came back. Um, came back and I was training like really, I thought I was training really well, training really hard. Thought deserved an opportunity and it just never came, and and um, that was that was a disappointing end to the season. But yeah, as a whole, learnt a lot. Uh, get thirty games under my belt, and um, I felt actually the next season coming back that preseason, I felt like really ready to really ready to stake a claim to be more more of a regular. With that time in Sunderland's history, I'll probably remember it till the day I die because it was it was the most weird positive slash negative time ever. I mean. By the time he'd arrived back, Mick McCarthy had been sacked and, and Bowley and um, Quinney had both been in. So a temporary charge, if you prefer. Um, you'd been back once or twice during the Premier League season. But then you kind of came back into the first team picture under, under Quinney. Now, I spoke to our interview uh, now, Quinn, a few years ago, and he spoke about how when he was manager slash chairman slash secretary slash whatever job he needed to do, um, he invited each player, I think, into the office alphabetical order, see where they thought their future lied. And I think the first three players which we worked out the first one would have been Ben Anik, um, wanted to leave immediately. I said, I want to go sort of elsewhere. Now, I think as far as I remember you, you told me you really wanted to get in this team and not go down. But do you remember the meeting that you and Niall had? And, and if so, you know, how did he treat those players during that period, which was probably quite a difficult transition of no man's land because we had no real manager? Yeah, I think, um, again, it was probably the worst, in some respects, it was the worst thing for me because coming back in and, 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 Niall, and Niall was there and he's trying to get a hold of... It's very hard when a team has been relegated and he's probably not planning to be the manager. 
he's you know he's trying to get a hold of things and I'm the least of his concerns because I'm fourth fifth choice centre back but in my mind this is the time for me to really I need to get I need to start getting in and, and playing um, the conversation again you know for me it was just about putting a marker down saying I'm going to do everything I can and I had a good I had a good pre-season but, but again as you look at it now is Niall Quinn going to start me in the first game of the season when he's got people like Kenny Cunningham uh, Danny Collins uh, I can't remember who else uh, Stevie Caldwell, Caldwell was there yeah so like you know, I look at it now, but I felt, I remember thinking, I'm, I'm, I should be in with a show here. But what I'll always remember is, um, so I was playing, and we had a terrible start to the season after a good, it was a terrible start. Uh, we got beat 3-2 at home to Plymouth, and um, I got, they were playing South End the next game, and he was, and I'd, I'd been playing really well in training and reserves, and he's like, you're playing this weekend, and I thought, brilliant, like, do well. And we went down there, and we got beat 3-1, and, um, I remember after the game, because I thought, you know what, I played well there, but we could beat 3-1 by Southend. The fans are going mental, rightly so. Sunderland, it's not good enough. Um, and I remember after the game, and Niall Quinn, uh, as he was great with me, but he did his interview and he said, one player that can hold his head up was Neil Collins today. And I remember thinking, wow, that, that at the time for me as an individual in a selfish way, as things were poor for the club, I thought well, it was nice to be recognised first game, desperate to do well, desperate for the team to do well. But I'm thinking we've just lost three one to South End. Not good. And then it got worse because we went to Bury and got beat 2-0. And you know, I felt so bad for Niall Quinn. Um because at the end of the game I think he just didn't know what to do. But we all know what happened after that. But what I would say about Niall, because I've I went on loan to Wales and as a chairman he phoned me on a couple of occasions and again just went above and beyond just to just the personal touch and I've, I've played in a testimonial with him since and yeah he's someone again I just hold in really high regard I just thought it was a really tough period he was he was an honest guy trying to do his best for a club that he quite clearly has a huge affection for and um, wasn't ideal for me but I've got good really really good memories of, of Niall and um, I think he's someone that was better when he was involved at Sunderland the club was better off when Niall was involved yeah, I agree with that. I think now I've got a fantastic ability from the really small interactions I've had at making everyone around him feel like the most important person on the planet. He was two hours late for, for my interview and he came in and said, I'm only available for 40 minutes. I know I offered you an hour and a half. But somehow he managed to make me feel like I was the important one and like he was really like happy to do it. And I just thought, what a wonderful man. And afterwards I thought, that bastard was two hours late and he's made me convinced that it was that was absolutely fine when it really, really wasn't. But phenomenal man on a serious note yeah. and an absolute summon legend. Um, Roy Keane's appointment, obviously, as you touched on before, was something that changed the entire dynamic. Now, technically it was Quinny's game, but in my opinion, by this point, everyone knew Roy Keane was taking charge. So we play against West Brom, you score. I was down at Leeds a few days later. I think you played it right back. Um so first two games, you think, oh, I really want to impress Roy Keane here, but this might be the long game. He puts you straight in, uh, which would have been, I think, Derby, you got dropped, and then Leeds, I think he brought you back in at right back. But what was your opinion on Keane? Is he, is he as fiery as he, he makes out? So again, um, when he got appointed, my immediate thought was, again, Roy Keane will not know who I am. And I don't mean that, that he wouldn't know he'd do his homework. I'm sure he would be aware, but what I mean is he'll not have any ideas of me as a player so that day against West Brom I was so fired up to do well and we, we had a very good team performance that day and his impact was definitely felt 
And equally, I was pleased for Niall. Uh, you know, I was pleased to get the win for his last game in charge. Um, then, yeah, then he signed all these players and we went to Derby. And uh, I got the feeling that, because he did, he kind of shaped up a little bit two days before and I wasn't in it. And I just, again, I've told you at that point in time, I, I was like so focused on I need to start getting in the team regularly. So I just went to see him, first player at the club to go and knock his door. And he was my hero growing up. Um, you know, Tommy Burns and then Roy Keane was a close second. But again, I, I was I didn't really care. Um, I was going to go in and see him. I wasn't going in um, to have an argument, just to ask where he, where things stood. We just beat West Brom 2-0. And regardless of the goal, I, I, I you know, I'd played very well against John Hartson. And he made me feel like a million dollars. He was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I think he respected the fact that I went to see him as a young lad. And he just said, look, you've got a big part to play. I really like what I've seen. Um, we're going to take this club one way. You're going to be part of it. We went to Derby. I was on the bench. We won. And then he, he still put me in the next game at right back. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, I just I just felt, yeah, he, he could tell you how it was. He could make you feel uncomfortable. But a lot of positives and I have a lot of positive things to say about him. And um, even when it came to me wanting to go to Wolves, Roy wanted me to stay. Roy Keane asked me to stay and I just felt with Mick I would get more of an opportunity to play centre-back in my position. And I think if I'd been more experienced and more games under my belt, I would have stayed and really fought for my position. But at that time, I wanted a bit more of the... or less of the unknown. So yeah. I, can, I said I thought it was best. And the fact that he, again, he let me go, but again, he was very much like, look, I'd like to stay. Um, but again, Roy's not one of those ones. If you want to go, he's not going to especially a young kid, if you, if you want to go, he's going to let you go. But nothing but good things to say about him. With Keno, was he the kind of perfect anecdote for what was, like, at the time, a losing culture at Sunderland? Did he, was it, it kind, of, it kind of felt as a fan, like he walked in the door and everyone just went, right, we don't lose anymore then. That's kind of how it felt. Yeah, we went from, we went from, like you say, like, lose, lose, lose. And then we beat Derby, we beat Leeds. Um, we got beat West Brom, we, beat, we won three and I thought, I don't think we'll ever lose again. Yeah. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't as straightforward as that because I think between then and January, it was still a bit up and down. But no question, no question. Whatever anyone says about him, and like anyone, he's not perfect. You want to impress him. You want to do well for him. You want, you know, he's, he's got an aura about him that you can't, you know, whether it's because he was a great player or not, it doesn't matter. He's got that aura and he's definitely just suited to Sunderland. Just like Mick suited Sunderland, even though they're both different, they're suited to Sunderland and I think there's, a lot to be said for that with clubs like tradition that Sunderland have got. Yeah, I've always said that with Sunderland, that the best managers that succeed at Sunderland are the ones with real character, like McCarthy, <laughs> Reedy, Allardyce, Roy Keane. Yeah. Character in abundance and, and all successful. Um, I don't think it's any secret that Mick and Roy didn't really get on. Um, well, since Saipan, shall we say, I don't think they've actually spoken, but the first conversation that they had was to negotiate your move to Wolves. So, was that kind of surreal, being the peacemaker between one of the biggest feuds in, in football history? I wouldn't call it peacemaker, but yeah, they spoke. <laughs> they spoke. Um, I mean, so strange. So strange, as I say, Roy Keane growing up was a hero, and then everything about that situation with them. So I think it says to me a lot about them, both that one Roy Keane 
you know, Mick phoned Roy, Roy answered and spoke and they sorted it out. Yeah. Simple. Because again, when it comes down to it, they might not get on, but they're both just professional and acted like men in that situation. And I'm grateful for them both that that, that was able to happen because I was really concerned that it wouldn't because of that. Um, and, and, and that didn't hold it, hold it back. And, and it wasn't so much about leaving Sunderland, but just about the opportunity to go and try and start becoming a regular somewhere. Talking about Wolves, obviously the, the loan of Wolves became permanent um, and you went on to play a really prominent role in another championship promotion. For me, I sometimes feel that Wolves gets um, is underrated the right word. Um, so the money they've spent in these days and the quality they have, yeah, people really admire them now. But I think for many, many years, and certainly since I've been a kid, Wolves are a huge club that sometimes people forget how big they are. I mean, how big was it turning out for a promotion chase in Wolves' side and how intense was the pressure at Wolves? Because it's a huge club, isn't it? Again, you mentioned it. I mean, a huge club, a great fan base, passionate fan base. And I think the biggest thing you said is, is there's, a, there's a pressure. I mean, I think, um, again, with Sunderland, there's a, there's a demand, but the people in the North East are different and they love their football, very supportive, but demanding. The Wolves fans are, are, are again, is passionate, but demanding in a different type of way. Um, quicker to quicker to get on people's backs, even when things are going going well. I uh, don't know if it's just a trait of the Midlands, um, but again, really great memories. I'm glad I played when the club was doing well. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, yeah, I totally agree, and I think these are clubs that are great to see, like a Wolves in the Premier League is. You know, there's something good about watching Wolves in the Premier League, just as we're missing the Premier League's missed Leeds and misses Sunderland. Because yeah. people like to watch these clubs because um, there's great tradition about them. Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree. And obviously I'm biased with Sunderland and, and I've for a long time disliked Leeds. And even I've started finding myself enjoying Leeds being back. But when it comes to Wolves, I think... You know, you're looking at it, you're coming from Queen's Park, Dumbarton, then Sunderland, Sheffield United on loan. Um, obviously, went on to play from later in Wolves as well. When you get signed by clubs like that with that level of intense pressure, there must be a part of you that thinks, well, I'm doing something right here because I've, I've not made it. You obviously want to go as high up as you can, but you think, I've played for Sunderland, I've played for Wolves and Sheffield United. Does that give you like an inner confidence having that kind of intensity? I, honestly, I just think very, I just feel myself very fortunate to get. The opportunity that the manager at the time, at those clubs, is is um, seen something in me that thinks I'm capable of playing. Um, grew up obviously supporting my team, which was Kilmarnock, and relative to Scotland, I mean, they're a big club in Scotland um, mm-hmm. traditionally. And I remember going going along and big games as a fan, and then and then also watching English football and recognising your Sunderland rules, Leeds. You know all these teams, so the opportunity to play for them wasn't lost on me. Um, but yeah, I think I think again being part of these clubs just it's great, and you learn quickly. You, you learn quickly, and that's where the senior players are good, and the fans are good. You know, I'd much rather play for a club where things are bad and it's really bad, but when things are good, it's really really good, as opposed to just being middle of the road all the time. Yeah. And that's what I love. You know, I love that those away days. You know, uh, my first year we went to Derby with Sunderland, we won 2 0. We were, you know, top of the league. I think it's just amazing, amazing experiences. And um, that's one of the reasons I kind of chose something different when I left Sheffield United. 
was to come over here because I, I you know, I just thought I might, I might find it tough going to a lesser team in England where you turn out away and there's 200 fans there. And I know it means the same to them as it means to you. So I, I get that. But it's just great when you've got that big following and that pressure. You know, the expectation is great. And every, I think every club you've been at as well could probably tick that box if we wanted to, in England especially. Um, the Wolves side that you played in had some great characters. And the one that stands out for me is one of my favourite centre-halves of all time, Jordy Craddock. Great man, great character, great defender. But Richard Stearman, um, he was obviously a character as well, which we've seen last year on social media with his, his enjoyment at Sheffield United getting promoted. Um, Carl Henry, I think a bit of a shithouse, but you'd want him in, you'd want him in your team probably for that reason. Um, Mick McCarthy managing to foster another great team spirit. How, how does Mick McCarthy manage to foster such a good team spirit wherever he goes? Because he does do it. A couple of things. Um, leads by example. You know, I think you can say, say things, but that means nothing. You, you lead by example. So he leads with his own work ethic, his own values, the way he treats people. And then two, just he recruits the right people. You know, he recruits the right people. He gets in people that are going to play a certain way, exude certain things. I mean, Carol Henry, you mentioned Carol Henry, great lad, great player um, in terms of championship, you know, premiership in terms of helping teams that bottom half. Um, so he just fosters that, you know, here's the standards. He loves them, brings in players that, that have those same standards and lets it all kind of take its course. So... You, you know, as a, as a manager myself now, I try and look at what he did and, and I want to create similar environments where it's boys that are hungry, boys that are play with determination, desire, but then have a great time doing it. Yeah, that was absolutely. Thing, yeah, you know? and that's that's definitely something, I suppose, if you played under McCarthy twice and obviously playing under Roy Keane, I can imagine you've took, and the way that Roy Keane probably took stuff from Brian Clough and Sir Alex, whether he'll admit that or not, do you take things from the managers you played under with your own twist on it then when you become a manager? The first thing and one of the things I try to say is like, I'm not Mick McCarthy or Roy Keane. Quite clearly I'm myself and I've got to be myself otherwise people see right through you. But I do quite often think in situations what would what would Mick have done there? Why would he have done that? Right, yeah, I think that's the right course of what how would, how would Roy Keane, what would he have said about that? You know, and I think you obviously take the good and the bad from, from all these coaches, but then you are yourself. You've got to be. Um, you take sessions that they did and add and pull things from, man management. Um, but, yeah, but again, then as well, the game's always changing and that doesn't mean their principle, yeah. their principles still apply. But what I mean is um, you're always looking at how it affects the current situation. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in modern day, I suppose. Um, you had a season on loan at Preston North End. You played under Darren Ferguson, who's obviously still in the game at Peterborough. Well, he's always at Peterborough at some point. Um, what was your time with Darren like? Because obviously I can imagine, even if you try not to, you sometimes maybe go there with a perceived idea because of his dad. Yeah, so I went to Preston under Alan Irvin and then, uh -huh. and then he got sacked and Darren came in and I wasn't obviously Darren's cup of tea, and and I, and I would say at that point, I, I was probably um, could have handled things differently. Left Wolves, and definitely learned a lot during that period. And me and Darren didn't necessarily didn't see eye to eye. Um, 
and the fact that you didn't pick me. <laughs> but but I think um, what I would say about Darren is that he learned a lot from that period in time. I learned a lot, and and, and then after that period, he actually tried to sign me again, and I would have, I would have went to play for him at Peterborough. If circumstances had been had been different, and um, I certainly, as I say, look back at my part in that time and think I could have done things differently. And I think he said the same publicly about his whole pressing experience. So he's been on and done great with Peterborough and his teams are always pretty exciting to watch. And again, you talk about clubs suiting different managers. Darren McCantney, the, the owner there, is very good. And him and Darren get on really well. So it seems to be pretty um, successful kind of process they've got together. But yeah, but yeah that, wasn't, that wasn't the best period. <laughs> I thought you'd only been there. I thought I might, I might not get the best answer out there, but I'll try it nonetheless. Um, as it was, though, I mean, you technically dropped the league, but you certainly didn't drop a, a club size. You actually probably went to a, a huge club and one of the biggest clubs in, in Britain, I think. Um, Leeds at the time were in League One. Everyone knows the story of Leeds. Leeds are finally obviously back in the Premier League, which we touched on. But they've been a massive club, even in that sort of 15 years they were away. I mean, they are like an elite team, whether you like them or not. And I know that a lot of people don't. Um, and I know Leeds don't really care about that. But you're part of the side that helped them get outside of League One. Talking about intensity, if you know the club, Sunderland's intense, Wolves is intense. I imagine Leeds and League One, that must have been like a, an insane amount of intensity. Yeah. Again, when I was leaving Wales, my first choice was to to go to Leeds, even though they were in League One, I just felt it was a great opportunity to go to the club and, and play, and it didn't happen, but then it did at the end of that season. And, um, played the last 10 games, and um, that last game when we knew we had to win at Ellen Road to, to get promotion, couldn't wait for the game, I couldn't wait for it, but it was the pressure that week was was intense. And, and, and that, that final day game against Bristol Rovers, when we won to go up, would definitely go down in my top three um, experiences. It was just, we were down to 10 men, 1-0 down, 40 minutes left, and we came back and won, and the place was just unbelievable. Um, no, I respect Leeds as a huge club. I think, just like you've said it, they're just, just a great football club in England, and um, great following, pleased for their fans, and that was a great experience to be part of that. When you were at Leeds, a lot of people talk about um, the North East has been a bubble, and it most definitely is. Um, but Leeds are kind of on their own in a sense. I suppose Newcastle and Sunderland are different cities, but we're eight miles apart. Leeds, there's not, there's not really that much nearer, if we're honest with you. Which is the, yeah, you've got Sheffield and that, but it's, it's not near. Um, how much of a bubble is Leeds? Like, do you get like stopped in the street? Do you sometimes get a bit of jip in the street? Get a bit of you know, people having a go at you and stuff like that because it means that much to them? Yeah, definitely. Lead, that's definitely where Leeds is. You know, the, the rivals are like Manchester United, and that's as you say, they're not close. Um, no, just again, like you, you get you're out walking your dog, and people are shouting, "How you doing?" And then, yeah, of course, you get some stuff that's not quite as nice when it's not going as well. Um, but that's what I love. I just love that. I just love when the football club means so much to the people, uh, man, women, boy, girl. Like they just. They're all, they all know about how the football team's getting on. Um, that's the teams you want to play for. So, again, it was, it was, it was intense, but, but great. Great, and, and, and uh, you're right. They don't have that neighbor, neighbourly rivalry, but it almost sets them apart in terms of having all these fans to themselves. Looks like Leeds and Sunderland and, and Wolves, and especially probably Sunderland and Leeds, 
do you think you need to have a certain kind of character to play for a club like that? Because like you said before, you know, there's been certain situations over the past few seasons where there's been maybe unsavory things said that have been caught on camera, such as the nature of social media. To I think a couple of seasons ago, someone had to go Tom Flanagan's hair and said his hair was rubbish or something like that. Or I can't quite remember what it was, but it, I, I think he not even played and he'd been in the shower and they said how rubbish he was and he said, I haven't even played, I've only been in the shower doing my hair or something along that line. And everyone watched it was like, oh, for God's sake. But we know what happens across big clubs. Um, do you think you need a certain character where, like, you know, when that unsavory stuff comes along, you can kind of just be a bit like, yeah, whatever, mate, that's fine. Because if it means that much to the people that you get the negative and the positive in such full flow, you know you're at a football club where football's everything. Is that a positive and you've got to have the right kind of character for it? Yeah, definitely. You don't all need to be the same character to be successful there because you've seen that. There's mm-hmm. like guys that are successful that are quiet, you know, in their nature. But somewhere you need to have a thick skin, steely resolve, just an ability to deal with that. Absolutely. And I think it's, I wouldn't say it's harder, but again, if I was playing for Sunderland, I wouldn't be on social media. Um, not, you know, I just, I, I, I wouldn't be because I'd be close. I'd, I'd try to keep that negative stuff away because uh, again what's the you know what's the point it's not not to not engage with the fans great if some player wants to engage with the fans brilliant but I think you've just got to have a real sense of who do you listen to and then yeah like you said these fans it's their life if they want if they're going to shout at me I'm going to need to deal with it and just get it right on the field yeah. uh, that's it and it, it, you know you, it's as simple as that and I think um you can get a lot of different types of characters that can deal with that, but then you can get certainly ones that are good players and Championship League One, but not for clubs like that. And then when they come, they, they, they're almost blown away by the pressure. You played under Simon Grayson at, at uh, Leeds. Grayson, from a Southern fans perspective, and he wasn't helped by an edited documentary, no matter what your thoughts are. And he hasn't had a successful past few years, and he's probably been a bit prodded and poked at and laughed at because of the Sunderland documentary. And he, he did not do well at Sunderland, but neither did Coleman. Um, you know, neither manager did well, and both have got very different reputations in the game. He had a really good reputation at Leeds. He's a big Leeds fan, you can tell. You played under him, you had success under him. Um, where does he rank under managers that you played under? Um, I think it's very difficult. Right, when you're on a documentary where you're showing seven, eight hours from a 46-game season, to be judged on that is very difficult. And I, I think that's... I wouldn't like being in that situation where that's thrust upon you in a job coming out of the Premier League that... I, I, Mourinho could have been in charge of that club and they might have got relegated. They might yeah. have done, right? A lot of that stuff that I've seen in that was similar experiences to what I had playing under Simon Grayson, personally. Um, some of the players at the time, should they be maybe saying those things on camera? Probably not. They probably had enough to be getting on with, but man management, not particularly a strong point of Simon's. Um, I don't think tactically, again, I've seen moments of great, great tactical preparation and they were few and far between compared to someone like Mick McCarthy. But again, very effective manager um, at times. Got Blackpool out the uh, League One, kept them in the Championship. Um, you know, had some great results, great results with Leeds in the Cup and 
got Leeds out of that league. Um, I personally think the following season, with the squad we had, we should have been promoted again. Um, I left around January, end of January, and at Christmas time we were second, and we should have capitalised on that. Um, so I'm I'm always, I'm now in the same job as Simon, and he's and if I have, you know, some of the success that he's had, I'll be very pleased. But again, if I'm being perfectly honest, uh, my experience with Simon wasn't that much of a positive one, um, and I think some parts of the Sunderland documentary you might be disappointed with, but I, I've certainly seen a lot of those aspects in my time under him at Leeds. Yeah. Um, the next club that you went to, obviously your, your final spell in England was, a, I think, a six-year stint at Sheffield United. Um, in your first season, I think it was the first and ended in relegation, but there was actually a period of time where you played under, obviously, the late, great Gary Speed. And I mean, I've got to be honest, as a Sunderland fan, when he played for Newcastle, I hated playing against him because I knew what kind of a player he was like. And it's very easy to speak about someone who's, you know, passed on and, and speak about them in positive terms. But he did always come across like a, a fantastic bloke, like a really wonderful guy. And it's beyond sad what happened. But in your experience, you know, how good of a person was he? Well, I just, I actually just let, went to Sheffield United just after he... Just after he just left, miss him. Uh, he went to Wales. But I'll tell you a quick story yeah. that tells you how nice he is. Um, playing against Sheffield United for Leeds. And um, huge, you know, great game. Full house at Ellen Road. They've not started great Sheffield United. And it's a real ding-dong Yorkshire derby. It was brilliant. It was a great game. And um, something's happened over near the touchline. And he's got out his dugout to have a go at one of our players. And I was like, right in the moment of the game, and I just give him an absolute mouthful. Gary Speed, legend, just like out of order, really, from me. But I'm in the game, and I'm just like, Pants. told him what I thought. And then um, at the end of the game, and that, that was probably one of my best games in Leeds Jersey. We won 1 0. But he came up to me at the end of the game, shook my hand, and kind of apologised. And the only person that should have been apologising was me, but I just thought that kind of tells you all you need to know about. The gentleman that he is, and it was sad when, when the news came through. And I went to Sheffield United only a month or two later, and I think that had an impact. Yeah, you know, I think that had an impact on on the guys there when it, you know, when the news came through. Um, so yeah, great man. Yeah, and uh, you know, everyone says the same thing and said before, you know, beforehand, everyone's had really good words to speak about him. Um, I thought you were there under him, but. You know, you've had the experience of him, which is great that, you, you know, you've, you've managed to even just miss him by a month, but at the same time have that experience. Um, when you were at Sheffield United, I'm going to go one positive, one negative here, but you'll you understand why I'm asking the negative question probably, but the positive first and foremost, um, you went on an unbelievable FA Cup run, which ended in like a bonkers sort of eighth goal filler against Hull City. You went in the lead twice before falling behind to, I think, four second-half goals against, I'm sure it was bloody Steve Bruce. Um, I'm sure it was his whole team. That was at Wembley, because obviously the semi-finals were played at Wembley at the time. Pinnacle of a lot of people's careers playing at Wembley in, in any sort of game. When you look back on that game, because I imagine at the time you're devastated, you've conceded five, you've been in the lead twice. But when you look back on it, how do you view it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, a lot of pride in that, that spell. It was great, really you know, great time. We went um, club record, 10 wins in a row. Yeah. Club record, clean sheets, culminating eventually getting to the semi-final. Um, 
the week leading up to semi-final, great preparation. We're going to go and play. We're going to go and enjoy it. We took Hull completely by surprise. Dominated them first half. Couldn't get close to us. We were 2-1 up. Then the second half, we ran out a little bit of steam. And also, I think we should have maybe adapted more. Individual. It's easy in hindsight to, to, to say all these things. You know what? Although we lost five goals, the Sheffield United fans club was awful for. We put in a great team performance. I think... I still think to this day that we missed an opportunity, but it's hard. It's hard because you know it's hard to say too too much because you know it's easy after the fact. We continue to try and go the way we had in the first half, and maybe we should have changed. But maybe we'd say if we'd changed and it hadn't worked, we'd have said we should have kept doing the same thing. That's yeah. that's life, isn't it? We we lost kind of two sucker punch goals, and then it went four two quite quickly. And honestly, by the end of the game, we were like, if that had went to extra time, because we made it 4-3, and I thought, this goes to extra time. I don't know how we're going to get through it, because Wembley does sap it out of you. Yeah. So, no, it was it was a lot of pride in that run, but then disappointment as well. Um, you played for Sheffield United during a time when it was a bit chop-changey, shall we say. There was managers here, managers there, 5th, 3rd, 11th, 6th, not quite landing where they should be now. The similarities that I have between Sheffield United and West Sunderland are not that surprising because I think at the time, Sheffield United obviously played its biggest team in League One at the time. Impossible to say anything different. So, probably more from a Sunderland perspective, what is that division like in terms of the pressure that you can feel when you're the biggest club in that division and every single club that you play against week in, week out sees you as a scout? How difficult is that? It's difficult, but it can be positive in equal measure, depending on how good you are. Yeah. Because you can be beat, you can have beaten teams before they turn up. But if you're not good enough, it's double hard. Because one, you're not good enough, and two, they're doubtful, they're up for it. Um, we were very unfortunate in our first year at Sheffield United. I mean, we had a fantastic team, 92 points or 90 points. The whole Chad Evans thing, everything that could have went wrong in some respects went wrong. We still scored loads of goals. So that was unfortunate. And then before you know it, you're in there a second year. You lose some of your good players. You fill them up with lesser players. Um, but you're still the big club. Mm-hmm. I think, um, and this is only my opinion, and I didn't have to watch the football, so I, don't, I can't remember, but Danny Wilson did a really good job in difficult circumstances. I think probably very similar to Jack Ross. And when things are looking like we're not going to get out maybe a second year, apart, it's probably more down to the circumstances sometimes than the, than the manager. He's probably done really well in difficult circumstances, but the fans just can't think. One year's fine, two years. The thought of a third year becomes like, but it ends up worse. And Danny, in hindsight, Sheffield United shouldn't have sacked Danny Wilson. I'm not saying that that's necessarily the case with Jack Ross. I don't know, because I'm... You know, Sunderland fans, it's their club. Um, but I think getting the right man, you said it's Sheffield United. Um, again, Nigel Atkins, fantastic record as a manager. Unbelievable. Wasn't the right man for Sheffield United. In difficult circumstances, a difficult time. Chris Wilder, right man, right time. Um, I always felt with Nigel, he just didn't get the club, didn't get, didn't get the fans. Wilder quite clearly does. I just feel with Sunderland, you get what the North East's about, you get what the club's about, go a long, long way. Get what type of players thrive there. 
you know, that that's a big part of it. So, again, to answer your question, yeah, it's tough at times, especially um, every home game's tough because teams come, but at the same time, they camp in, so you just dominate them. You go yeah. on the road, you're taking four or 5,000 people. It's their biggest home game of the season. But you know what, Ian, give me the four or 5,000 because when you win, it's just phenomenal. Yeah. So... I think I think if you've got the good team good enough, the problem with Sheffield United at times we just didn't have a good enough team. But you know, so you can deal with expectations, but if you don't have goal scorers and people that can do the things that you need to win, it doesn't matter what the mentality is. But Neil, thanks so much for popping on. Really good to catch up. Um, I'm sure the weather's better in um, Tampa Bay than where it is here in in not so sunny Glasgow. But appreciate you coming on and, and taking time away from Sunday, mate. Thank you. Thanks very much. Cheers. No problem. Mate.